Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Ahali Conversations. And we are back. Our second season is pretty much about notions of practice. We will be exploring how cultural producers do their work, whether they are artists, designers, curators or writers. And together we will figure out how they position themselves within the larger context that they inhabit. So welcome back to this new season of Ahali Conversations. Also a final note before we start. We'll be sharing visual samples from the works we discuss on Instagram. So make sure to check out our account, ahali.podcast, to get glimpses of the projects that we discuss today. Our guest today is Yarzi Seymour, a designer and creator of situations who first made a name for his industrial products, which soon turned into a much more experimental practice that combines materiality with relationships and setting up situations. While his work is included in numerous museum collections from MoMA to Centre Pompidou, he continues to make large-scale projects or storylines that follow an ethos of imagined societies. He has also ventured into creating educational situations as he founded and still directing the Dirty Art Department, a master's program focusing on applied arts and design at the Sandberg Institute. Welcome, Yarzi. It's great to have you today with us. Thank you, Can. It's very nice to be here. So I'm going to start from like a more broad, like your approach to design in a sense, because you've mentioned on several occasions that your approach to design is about making situations. So can we maybe start with unpacking that a little bit? Yeah, I guess to explain in a way how, you know, I originally was educated as an industrial designer, meaning, you know, designing products for production. Mm-hmm. And uh, and very quickly, once you understand what's behind the object, you understand that design is really about the systems that support it. The objects are about the systems that support it, including the economy, the work life, social support, the whole political system that we live in. So, of course, when I disengage the idea of, of a designer or of a product design from being a service to an industrial system which is basically supporting capitalism and being more of an anarcho left than a, a capitalist it's obvious that i have to relook at the system that supports the objects and therefore also the systems become even more important so i think that's really where where the beginning comes from and i i think i mentioned to you when we briefly chatted before about a couple of very formative moments when working with uh, some industrial companies such as Magis in Italy and a long time also with the Group 7 in France around the 2008 economic crisis where we were working uh, to design objects with different factories and of course people were losing their jobs and so you see how fundamentally a part of society economy etc that design is in terms of even the objects in the traditional sense and then when we expand that larger of course we're, we're basically looking at uh, if i would use the analogy to situationist international that the only form of art is picking up the brick and throwing it we could also say the only valid form of applied art or design is picking up 
the brick and throwing it, but like, let's say, not from the 60s perspective, but from today. So that really re-look, looks at remaking the systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, happen- what happens after you throw the brick and what society do you want to create by recreating those systems? Yeah, or even making a brick that... that you can throw but maybe i think of course i'm aware of the story but it could be interesting to hear from you directly how that formative experience was and in a way what what it led you to pursue afterwards in terms of mode of operation mode of working and your relationship to labor and materials and maybe collectivity as well Yeah, I don't think it's all totally synchronous, let's say, mm-hmm. the, the story, but the, the reflections had already started well before. But I think one of the stories was that the owner of Magis asked me to design a chair in, in bent wire because there was a factory that was really struggling and we wanted to make it not struggle, let's say. So it was a factory that produced um, also bird cages, different things in bent wire using robotic machines, etc. And so we, we developed a chair using their technology and two weeks before the furniture fair i i can't remember now if that was 2009 or something or 2010 two weeks before the furniture fair mateo from magis went to pick up the prototypes and he was walking into the building and men and women were walking out crying uh, that had just been told that they were their jobs were laid off and they'd been working in this company for 30 40 years you know and it was wow. it, it's it's really an impact when you see that, you know. So that's something quite serious. I mean, we're talking about the life of, you know, families of a community. So in that sense, I think that, of course, this fits very much into, you know, when we talk about labor, work, et cetera, which is a very changing landscape today. I mean, of course, we know that more automation is happening. This is a, an old story and a new story. But in some ways, we have to work out an economy that we can live on. And I think that the, the European landscape, or we can include perhaps Turkey in that as well, has been from a, you know, from a time when, for example, in Italy, it was very, it was a very cheap production place in Europe and they were able to have a strong industrial base to coming into the contemporary time where they have no longer an advantage in production has moved to less expensive places you know to satisfy the market so of course at a very base i would say like yeah we need one global basic income <laughs> um, but of course you know like or minimum wage but on the same hand we also come into this discussion of uh, things like basic universal income and basic universal welfare which i think the pandemic is very interesting to show that like of course during the pandemic a lot less production happened happened we suddenly realized that actually we don't need that much that many things but the problem is not what is not the objects that we need but the the economy we need to support our lives and there is obviously a great mismatch in that like actually we don't need to do so much work and the same for the climate like we don't need to produce so many things but we do need a way of making an economy yeah. and of course we have this 60s idea of ne travaillez jamais don't ever work and my my friends at the Macau collective in Milan made a campaign which is make love not work and these are kind of the contemporary questions in a way like how much do we actually need to work mm-hmm. to create an economy and how much do we not need to work to create a kind of healthy human being or yeah. world being but i think you have a 
kind of different position with regards to your work and your actions already from the past decade, but also more recently, uh, you've been engaged in setting up these kind of mini systems or small universes that include, that incorporate kind of collective making that in a way show the materiality of labor as well as you know, coming, I'm thinking about the amateur society, for example, or the living system where the mode of production was also very visible. Maybe you know, I, this is my reading, but kind of incorporate fun into labor or doing something together into labor. I'm like visualizing the, for example, the small campfire that the cauldron is not cooking food, but it's melting wax that can then be used to, in a way, kind of bind these wooden sticks that are lying around. That was the image I had of like a display of your work. But also moving now, it's much more advanced with like hope to hear from you, your work with the Macau Collective and the new radio uh, project as well. But even then there was this kind of merging of joy and work, which was different to how the so-called creative industries approach it, which was putting playgrounds into offices, whereas you were kind of materially and collectively proposing another possibility of approaching production. Yeah, I mean, I think the project that you talk about, Living Systems, which was an exhibition at the Vitra Design Museum back in, I think now, 2007, was a kind of contemporary remaking of Henry David Thoreau's Walden, which was, you know, really about the kind of individual economy. So I basically said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make what I need to live. I decided that I was going to make the objects that I need to live with from a, from a plastic because I kind of like its joyful formlessness, if you like. But I couldn't, of course, dig deep into the ground for petrol. So I decided to grow potato plants and synthesize a plastic from potato and then produce the objects in a DIY, kind of what we call a DIY futurist kind of manner. Mm-hmm to make what I need. And um, I think what was interesting about the project that in a certain sense, it was was a failure uh, in the sense that the objects were very brittle. It was really, you know, a kind of representation. But I kind of enjoyed that failure as much as like the idea of any totally individual autonomous position for a human being is is not tenable anyhow. But perhaps again, so to come onto this point of the joy or the pleasure or the fulfillment of, of making, that was kind of like, yeah, I kind of recognized something important from that and started the amateur projects with a with a wax material that I discovered, which melts at 60 degrees and you can work with it by hand and uh, it's biodegradable and et cetera, et cetera. And I used this material as both a, a metaphor and a physical thing for connecting things, people and ideas. And I talked at that moment about this idea of putting the fulfillment of the production into the hands of the people. As, as an idea of that being kind of a, a step in the revolution. In certain sense, I kind of recognize that as a kind of still a, quite a 60s call, if you like. Mm-hmm. And I hope that subsequent works have gone, gone to kind of create that discussion more nuanced. But yeah, the, the whole of the Amateur series, in a way, was an attempt at a very DIY production. In the case of Living Systems, the whole of the, the system of production, consumption, etc., was the individual. You made it yourself, you consumed it yourself. All of these systems that actually make up the kind of uh, structure were fulfilled. And in the amateur project, I tried to, to kind of expand that 
to talk about a, a general social situation. Because this is something I'm facing in like my work as well, this question of generating models or demonstrations or kind of revealing a certain possibility, especially coming from an industrial design background. How do you reconcile the, let's say, expectations from society at least to scale up or to increase volume or to kind of expand or spread around? Or do you keep them, do you see them as like, demonstrations in and of themselves? Yeah. Well, I think one of the core concepts, if you like, that I, I try to apply to my work is this idea of the non-Gazam-Gazam-Kunstwerk, so the non-total total artwork. So in one sense, you know, for the traditional modernist position of the architect or the designer was a kind of general overview of society, like how we make this, you know, society work, especially from an architect's mm-hmm. point of view. And we can say that the, you know, the, the failure of modernism is the failure of the Gesamtkunstwerk, which played itself out in communism and national socialism. And so how do you put yourself as an individual, how do you put yourself into this position to be to- looking at a totality because you have to look at all of the systems and try to make something work and not become a totalitarian? <laughs> so so this, this is the position of the non-Gazant-Gazant-Kunstwerk. It's a nice kind of, you know, problematic. I guess in my particular case, I mean, it's also down to resources, etc., but maybe even fundamentally important is that I don't consider that I make total works. I consider that I make blueprints or plans or examples of what can be mm-hmm. that can then be taken on and developed mm-hmm. out of my control. So this this non-Gazant-Gazant-Kunstwerk allows me to kind of make some prototypes, uh, mm-hmm. which can then be transformed in different ways. Of course, I guess uh, many of my prototypes are very much more working in this symbolic field than the, let's say, than the real, although they have real implications. Perhaps future projects will be able to get more into reality. And indeed, I mean, from the amateur project, which is which was this place for bringing together people, things people and ideas, the dirty art department was a direct consequence as a step into reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, that means no, you know, no longer were we using, was I using a wax as a metaphor. I, I was creating an educational platform as an actuality to expand the real discussions through an education system. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because it's also now not kind of self-contained, but is inhabiting already an existing structure and system, but it's also to a certain degree proposes a position. What's your take on design education and how did you kind of imagine and how is it going the dirty art department? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, of course, it's it's changing a lot and there's a lot more happening, let's say, I would say in the last 10 years of design education. But I think one of the characteristics, of course, is that design is always put into the creative industries and the creative industries is always supposed to support the kind of industry that's around, you know. Mm-hmm. And this locks it, this kind of locks its, um, you know, uh, philosophical and political discourse inside. So I think that that's a limit. I think that in many times design education is discussed within the history of design or industrial design, which is, you know, 250 years old. I mean, it's the industrial revolution. Whereas in the true sense, I mean, it's the history since the beginning of mankind. So I think incorporating 
I mean, understanding art history maybe with with a slightly different perspective, which actually goes back to the beginning of times, and we can, you know, read the texts of Georges Bataille and the Cradle of Humanity and and um, other texts that he's wrote. You, you you can create a different kind of design history. In fact, in in from Georges Bataille, there's a very interesting moment when he talks about the first time we picked up an object like a, a bone or a stick which wasn't made to be used as a weapon and used it as a weapon or as a tool or, you know, some, whichever was the first time that we understand, understood the concept of slavery, of being in charge of something that wasn't made for that use, you know. And it's almost like the whole history of design is actually a perversion, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And Bataille is a recurrent figure in our podcast, so I'm yeah. like, happy he emerges Uh, one more time is like I think his notion of general economy has been always like a very influential counterpoint for me in thinking about many dimensions of how we kind of inhabit uh, the planet and how we inhabit the systems. So that's amazing. But there is also a kind of tongue-in-cheek, the dirty art, and there is a certain aesthetics that come with it. In a sense, this DIY, this kind of I don't know what to call it, rave punk or the materials. And more recently, we've been seeing. I'm not sure if they are like products or let's say outcomes of this education, but the same aesthetic is also being utilized in let's say a different new market that emerged of collectible design and stuff like that. And this kind of making of objects that are then attributed to operate or circulate within other value structures. Do you have a take on that? I think the first point about humor is that, so I once tried to define what humor is in my work and why that's important. I always loved Martin Kippenberger's work, which is the happy ending of Franz Kafka's America. Yeah. And I, I once read a, a text that he wrote that about that. And in fact, the first thing he did was take all of Kafka's books and and he said like, okay, I mean, basically like in art, in theory, basically happy endings have been totally outlawed, like as being too naive and too, you know, too common, too stupid, something like that. And he said, well, fuck it. I thought I'll take all of Kafka's books and rewrite them with happy endings. <laughs> and, uh, I just love that. I just thought it was really, um, you know, somehow like, yeah, you can't be naive anymore, but like, yeah, let's just be naive for a moment. Let's just pretend that we can start again. You know, let's just try it. You know, even if we fail, let's, let's, let's just try it. So somehow in, in this discussion of humor, it's a bit the same thing. And I, I tried to, I tried to kind of have uh, an idea of what that would be like nonstop humor, humor or infinite humor, like something that's a bit impossible in a certain end, like the happy ending, you know, the, ha <laughs> the happy, happy ending or the sad, happy ending, you know. And I think it's important because it gives really kind of, it's really a relativity to us as human beings or as us as let's talk about us as beings on this planet, any being, you know, not just human mm -hmm. being. It, it kind of gives a, it's just a perspective on like, yeah, in a certain sense, just how small we are and ins insignificant, all of this stuff. Maybe the best thing is to be able to go out with a smile, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> um, I mean, in terms of, a, of the kind of last moment, yeah, this, this last time of design, where lot, let's say a lot of more experimental things have been happening, I think I'm not so interested in, in the, you know, the design being positioned in the gallery so much as the design being positioned in culture. Collectible design has the same problem with collectible art, which is, you know, just another form of, you know, very, very rabid capitalism. So that's 
something else, you know, and, and we will all use the gallery for, you know, for certain things. I think that design having this period to be in culture and to assert its importance in culture mm. is to say that, you know, art has always said, yeah, no, but we exist in culture and not in commerce, you know, in a certain aspect. And, and I think that, you know, the job of design, if we can say, like uh, Enzo Mari said, if design is anything, it's the social. I would add on to that. And you mentioned the word inhabiting the planet. It's how we inhabit the planet and conversely, how we inhabit our minds at the same time. And so it's fundamentally important that design is held as a work in culture rather yeah. than a, a work in, in commerce. And so I think this is this is really important that design is having its its chance to spread its wings. And I think certain areas happen in that. I think that this this area of collectible design is just one facet where it shows itself. And maybe that's important for a lot of young designers to have a space to operate because, of course, everybody's got to create their economy. But the broader picture is about how design now is to be understood as a cultural pursuit. Yeah. And I, I think that's like really important to underline because it's also in something I refer to often is to treat design as cultural production. So thank you for that note. And then how does maybe, because you also mentioned education is less about practice and more about providing a place. So how do you provide a place for that cultural production to yeah. emerge from? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, for me, I guess, you know, of course, when we look at, the, there's a very nice uh, book from Frank Olin Wright about how to be an anti-capitalist in the 21st century, which kind of says you have to use every single possible direction, you know, and he, he, he talks about a number of different places. I would say that one of the important places is, of course, education. I mean, if there's one place that we're relatively, relatively free, and of course, that's different all over the world, but let's say, I mean, the industry, the, the industry of art or design or whatever is not yet demanding certain things. Education is one place which is really important. And I would say one pl in, in terms of children's education, but also in, in terms of, you know, grown up kids, us grown up <laughs> kids education in terms of art and design and creating culture. So, of course, within, within um, you know, going from the amateur projects to the dirty art department, that is a kind of collective space. And I think that we, one way to, to understand the art is kind of like we're not a self-organized platform I think you know we're, we're inside an institute it's like you know it's different I mean one of our ex-students Tom was also part of the School of the Damned in London which is a totally self-organized platform and he was able to discuss talk quite well between the differences between Dirty Arts Department and a project like School of the Damned which we feel very close to um, but I would say more or less Dirty Arts Department is like a spaceship you know that, I mean basically the ultimate form of education is blasting off into space and looking through the universe, sometimes stopping off at some planets. And uh, the spaceship itself is the kind of platform. The tutor team are the kind of engineers making sure that the engine's running well and, you know, different things. And, and uh, the students are kind of directing you know, the direction of the ship. But of course, in, the, in that relationship, everybody, in a way, you know, everybody has an influence on how the direction goes. And I think in, in also in seriousness, I mean, the, you know, the teacher-student relationship is a very, has to be one of a lot of care and trust mm -hmm. between everybody. And so in that sense, I mean, I think, yeah, the dirty art department can be described as this kind of, this spaceship in a way that the very basic form of education for the dirty arts pub and is setting up context or situations for things to happen in. So I think one of the things that we did to discover what kind of thing that was, 
uh, very early on is that we bought everybody a ticket to go to Agadir and Morocco, a ticket back from Casablanca. And what happened between Agadir and Casablanca, which is about a thousand kilometers, I think, was what would happen. And it was a, it was incredibly like everybody went there with a plan. You know, they they went there with certain ideas of what they were going to do. Uh, Rainier had a beautiful project, which was that he was going to take some power tools, uh, secondhand power tools over with him. He was going to sell the power tools in the market to get a donkey. And then he was going to ride on a donkey from Agadir to Casablanca because this is what Erasmus of Rotterdam did when he rode from Rotterdam to, to the UK to meet Thomas More when he was writing the book uh, Utopia. Of course, it totally failed because like they wanted to rip him off on the power tools. The, the donkeys looked so sad. He was like, I can't do this to a donkey. So he got a bicycle in the end, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole thing kind of carried up. But the fact was that, I mean, what would doing, you know, in some ways what we're doing is a, a test or a practice. On the other hand, we have to be like in the real, you know, yeah. and the reaction to the real. So, I mean, you know, we also together decided that we need to occupy a building in Amsterdam because people didn't have a place to sleep, etc, etc. And this was a discussion that happened together. There was one student that was coming from the squatting scene in Holland. There was many people without a place to live in. We discussed how to do it. We, you know, it was a, something really a lot to organize and a lot of effort. And suddenly we had this total autonomous place which was not in the rules of the institute but was in the rules of whoever made the effort to make this thing happen and i think the explosion of what was able to happen in that context was so much you know uh, just noticing on from that so we just we understood that like okay i mean let's just set up situations where which promote things thoughts and reflections and actions to happen the next one was of course on meeting macau we said okay let's do you know a kind of living social sculpture at macau and maybe do you do you yes. want just to contextualize Uh, Macau is a squat in Milan, or yeah, Macau. Macau is probably you can call Macau is a, is is a collective which is running in in the kind of tradition of the Centro Sociale, uh, left wing uh, anarcho left occupied buildings of Italy. In the same time that the Dirty Arts Fund was formed, they organized the idea of opening up a new center for culture and art, kind of run by the people, which would be have a name like MoMA, Macbar, and became. Macau, where they said that this new culture center would open in, in the skyscraper next to the Centro Sociale, which had been left unused for many, many years and was owned by one of the most problematic right-wing industrialists in Italy. And they then went on to occupy the skyscraper with something like 10, 15,000 people of Milan coming out in support of the occupation. So it was, it was a very big impact in Italy, actually. So they, they eventually got thrown out, but not before it went to parliament. The whole discussion of the use of abandoned buildings, etc., for community projects. And subsequently, they took this other building. They started developing a kind of techno-economic, new techno-economic infrastructure. So that is a, a kind of legal bubble called Freedom Co-op, which was a corporation registered in Liechtenstein that only pays 0.01% corporate tax like the rest of the corporations, but where any, any entity, illegal or not, could have a fiscal reality inside this bubble. And then they started a, a pro, they created their own cryptocurrency called Common Coin and have, uh, are still running. So they're on about a five year experiment into universal basic income with their community, which has run, considering it's totally autonomous and open run by open assembly, which means that anybody that goes there can be a part of Macau, is running to some success. So in fact, we, you know, us deciding to come and do this project with the Macau was like, okay, I mean, here is a super important context situation 
existing and what does it mean if we stick Dirty Arts Department in together with Macau. Uh, we came up with this project, The Wandering School, and in a way there was, you know, was a, I mean, it was a crazy mess. We had no budget and we made a 15, 16-day public program and it's two months before we helped Macau renovate all of their spaces. So we did crazy kind of like, yeah, crazy work to get the space. They needed help. We needed help. Mm-hmm. It was a, a kind of great meeting. And let's say now that the relationship is continuous and we can we can really talk about each other as, as uh, brothers and sisters. Fantastic. Well, I mean, I, just as a parenthesis, I'm always a bit, I'll say, skeptical about the kind of, let's say, Northern Hemisphere and European schools tours to the underprivileged parts of the world but i mean yeah that i'll just put that as a parenthesis (laughs) no but i think let's continue with the macau because that's super strong and also a kind of a more reciprocal positioning with regards to you and your students and the co-op and the cultural community there and then you also told me that evolved into a project that includes product manufacturing certain products would you like to touch a little bit on that before we open up for questions because that's also really interesting in terms of this idea of the spaceship being now in a way more self-organized and different communities coming together to make something yeah well maybe to follow that up i would say that i then created as as an exhibition for the san etienne biennale in 2018 a project called uh, lucky larry's cosmic commune Mm-hmm. which was, again, a kind of living social sculpture. In the case of this, I created a kind of colored diagrammatic skin, and I invited different people to or different groups to inhabit parts of this kind of living diagram uh, skin of what we could hope as being the basis for creating a, a, a new society. I would add on to that that Lucky Larry was created as a kind of post-belief sense of belief. So the introduction line to Lucky Larry is, uh, Lucky Larry was around at the beginning of times before the first molecule started to replicate. He's lucky and he wants to share it with you. Um, anyway, that's uh, a big... A big uh, and in this project, there was the, the assembly space, which was a black and white striped space. And I invited Macau again to present their techno-economic infrastructure. And seeing it as very well as like, you know, in, in a certain sense, if we talk about creating the new society, if we start to talk about in these independent communes that are kind of working in a, a relative sustainability within themselves, of course, we need the bigger picture. And the techno the techno-economic infrastructure that Macau proposes start to create a connection between all of these things. So we're no longer totally autonomous, you know, hidden away entities, but you can actually start to create a, a bigger force. And this basis was the basis for creating the project in Hamburg. So I invited Cal to work with me and also assemble from the UK to create Life on Planet Orsimani Rana, which is again a kind of living community and, uh, and an active Uh, radio station to discuss the creation of the new world, if you like, which has a program, uh, has a kind of generative program where we talk about the exhibition and the radio station acting like a, a kind of fertile molecular mud to a kind of you know collective generative form of world building. The program is in six sections. So it starts with new cosmological encounters, which is how to imagine the new world, made from queer mud, how to make the new world, post-anthropocentric pleasure, how to live the new world, from democracy to moleculocracy, how to organize the new world, 
rivers of infinite funk, how to enjoy the new world, because one thing we were sure is that the new world has to be enjoyed. And uh, the final section, which was a primordial coup without causing injury, which was kind of how to demand the new world. That kind of gets to this new thing, because of course, one of the plans we have through this project, we invited many people in, is what will be the kickoff, the next happening from this project, which is now the meeting between my studio, Macau, and uh, the Ramafalo-occupied workers' factory in Milan, where we discuss making a new world industry, a new world project, which is the title. And we're basically looking to see if we can, for real, set up some form of utopian industry. That means like what we produce, how we create an economy, universal basic income, mutual aid, you know, re and really making something happen with that. So we have, in a way, a lot of the practical infrastructure between us to, to manage it. And we will see that will be the next time. So in the program now of the exhibition, we're discussing it. And in the next years, we're looking at, you know, hopefully creating it. <laughs> so it will be like so, a like fully operational factory, but also like a commune? Or can you give us some clues of like what it will what shape it will take? Well, I, th I think the radical question is, is that, I mean, it is a, com it is a community, it's a, co a cooperative community anyway. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it will be open assembly, it will be cooperative community because that is the basis. And the question will be like how we can really, I mean, the Ramaflo factory was, uh, was called Maflo, it was a car parts factory and in fact got shut down to produce, I think, uh, to take the factory to Eastern Europe to produce for cheaper. So all, the, all of the workers were without jobs and they occupied the factory and tried to create this kind of place, which is both a, a place for, in a way, I think that it's a recycle and reclaim workshops and a place of solidarity. Mm -hmm. And I think the challenge will be like, how can we help create them a real economy? So in a way, looking at both not be, being scared of the idea of maybe mass production, giving an example, for example, of the Mondragon Corporation in, um, in Spain, which is the biggest functioning cooperative on the planet, but whose probably fall down is that they end up being exactly like a normal capitalist company. How can we both, like the core of this factory has to basically be a kind of, you know, an ecstatic orgy, like should we and the problem is like should we actually be working and i think our first question will be to solve like how can we both make a reality an economic reality that sustains an economy for real people and not just become a victim to the normal system and i think this will be up the beginning like again still to be able to, to make love not work <laughs> i think this is a perfect moment to open up to comments or questions if there are any and then we can continue the conversation Highly conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions. If you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings, visit ahali.space and send us a line via email. I would like to maybe point out that one of the features of Macau that's very much in line with you is that they generated revenue by throwing parties for a lot of years, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, that's always been one of the discussions with them. And, and indeed, we had Giovanni Bozzoli, who's been the floor manager of Macau for many years, became a, a student of ours for, for two years as well. 
And uh, we, we indeed, in fact, Macau allowed us two times hold parties there to also create some economy for ourselves. And um, I think that this sustainability of Macau is something very important. There was always the discussion, like, can we make sure that we, you know, is it possible to not just be a nightlife venue? And how does that get translated into the creation of culture? But it's definitely one of the forms. I mean, it's, a re- it's really a shame right now. Of course, the pandemic allows nothing to happen. But it's certainly something I think interest you know there's the super dark anarchist techno of just like where anything can happen and at the same time there's a kind of forward-thinking active political agenda and the two kind of sometimes clash because like the you know the the the, the dark anarchist techno is just like fuck it all and chuck some bricks and make some dark corners and the political agenda is constructed you know and i find this incredibly healthy actually as a as a kind of mix and uh, and of course seeing that reality function as it does between you know both what they do as local community support they also did food packages during the pandemic but also being a safe place for local you know for lgbtq etc cetera, etc cetera, is amazing yeah really inspiring and uh, where do you see other local constituencies uh, like within this form of alliance between Rima, Flo and Macau? I'm referring to, of course, other communities such as Isola Art Center, which is very close to Rima, Flo, and also uh, other squatted uh, cultural uh, organizations such as Cochichotto. Yeah, Cox 18, I, I know from, because I lived in Milan for for a while so i used to go there when i was you know like in the early 90s and i and i i loved it it was actually i have to say that like meeting the centro sociale of of italy was a huge eye-opener for me because when you come you know when i grew up in london and when you come from london you know the, the squat scene is kind of very isolated and in italy it's you know it's quite uh organized and communicative and and open and clearly political as well and the Isola Arts Center I think what is very interesting and and Emanuele from from Macau actually now and now I forgot the name of the person from Isola Arts Center but they did certain projects I think which were very influential also for Macau in the discussion about decentralized autonomous organizations and uh, choreography and etc etc I mean certainly it would be interesting to be open to all these groups and and Macau of course is part of this pan-Italian network of all these groups so I guess we'll see in terms of this project what that means and uh, i think that the of course the idea of a solidarity network is part of it and i think the idea of new world projects in what it could become and what would become part of the discussion will be again about how it can be a blueprint for other communities as a functioning uh, setup and how then those those you know i mean i'm talking very idealistically but then how those communities of can of course then not just communicate on a on a verbal level but on a, a techno economical level because this is the way to create the new bubble i think like we have to if you want to create the new world we also need to create a new economic bubble because otherwise capitalism is so virulent and let's face it, the biggest problem in the world today is not the capital produced or, or the problem today is the capital produced by capital and not the capital produced by labor my idea would be that uh, and there is like the uh, meathouse syndicate in germany but the idea would be like how we can buy up all the property and take it off the market and this would be a revolution <laughs> and maybe maybe the, this would be part of the project of you know the, the different places to gradually buy up property and take it off of the speculative market this would be one of the big things to solve 
and then distribute it or like <laughs> yeah I, I mean i get the idea but yeah yeah, yeah. well it's a, it's a question then like what is yeah i don't i think the question then is how do you create a new property right isn't it mm-hmm. what would be the exactly. correct property right to base this on and i think i think that and i only have like you know i mean reflections on this so first of all is that property is is defined like in terms of land property, in terms of land is defined what as when a human exploits the land, it becomes his. This is one of the founding things of the understanding of property. And I think that we would start to, you know, should already start at the beginning to change this definition. You know, we only borrow the land in a mutuality from the mm-hmm. earth, you know, from uh, our ecology, from our, you know, as a basis, this would be a start. This would change our understanding mm-hmm. of what, what a property is. I mean, that's really interesting. And I can't help but think about the kind of transformation that the spaces you tackle, I mean, as everyone undergo. And there is also the, in a way, the aesthetic and the ecstatic dimensions, so to say, of how these spaces, like how we perceive them, basically, and how we've how you form them and you have a very significant language, so to say, does it ever become a topic in these dialogues? Like, or do you have in a way as a group kind of free reign over how the spaces are shaped and formed visually? You're talking about the the use of aesthetic. There is a kind of visual form that you bring. Absolutely. I'm like, I really dig the political dimension but i'm always thinking like there's also the the form and most often the form making and decisions around form making or not even the flow of form making gets lost in the absolutely well i think i think we could I would talk about uh, the aesthetic on, on, you know, this creation of the language and on a number of different levels. The first level is like, you know, in the discussion of, of, let's say, old left, like no representation was allowed, you know. And I would say that very dangerously what we come today is we see that uh, alt-right is taking all all of the sexy communication away from whatever was alternative. And so on this sense, you know, when situationists at International were like, you know, criticizing the society of the spectacle, I were to say today that we have no choice. Everything is mediated and we have to deal with the spectacle. It's not if the spectacle, it's how we deal with the spectacle. So that's that's one one level. And at the same time, and in the same discussion of that, and this was the discussion with Emanuele Braga from Macau and in the creation of Life on Planet Osimani Rana, is about how we also create the symbolic sphere of the world, of the planet to come, of the world we want to live in. And I think in terms of the language that I use myself, I could talk about, especially in terms of life on planet Osimani Rana, the, the space is really the idea of a kind of liminal space, a transformative space. So a, a place for putting the, the psyche into another condition. And at the same time, I think this the aesthetic is also kind of, there's also elements of a kind of an anarchic DIY, but also a kind of DIY futurism, which is a kind of clash of, of ideas. It's not the DIY back to the kind of Anthropocene. It's maybe like, um, maybe it's the, the, the non-worker attitude of the Anthropocene. That, <laughs> but the DIY is, uh, the futurism is also like, yeah, I mean, we're not going to the past. We have to go forward. And that's not that technology will save the day, but we will play with whichever ones of those can be used. And it's tongue in cheek at the same time. So I, I intend the, the language and the space is really to, to work in this kind of symbolic and transformative state. Can I jump back to the conversation about language as well? The world building concept is a recurring reference, like which I caught during your talk. So yeah. 
is one of the like, dominant concepts that has been largely elaborated by the cyber feminists. I just wanted to ask, do you like borrow it from cyber feminism? Um, I mean, yes. And uh, I'm trying to think now of the book that you will surely know that, that I refer to, Xenofeminism. Uh, but I, I would open that to many different areas. I don't think just from there. But of course, like this right to create yourself in any form that we want to be, you know. And this is also, we have Mary Magic, who's a transgender artist, who we have her videos in the exhibition in Hamburg, which is really about DIY estrogen production and how you can create yourself into, you know, whichever sexuality you want to be. I think that one of the things is like, yeah, this idea that you can create yourself into anything that you want to be and that freedom of that space. So, and it's like, what is the liminal space for? It's to, to reopen that creation of ourselves. And in a sense, the symbolic creation is also how we create ourselves. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a white straight male. It's super boring. And sometimes I, I especially, I, you know, and I would say like, I especially find myself sometimes like um, realizing like how locked we are in, in our past, you know, what there already is. And, and, and actually Dirty Arts Pub is super important for me as an experience for that, because there's a moment when I'm kind of like, you know, with the students saying, yeah, you know, I think you should do this and this and this. And there's a moment I'm going, I don't know what the fuck you're doing. And there's a moment that I learned to just say, I don't know what the fuck you're doing, but it's really interesting so just go for it and at the end they go ah now i got it <laughs> um i mean i think your your topic what you brought up brings into that it's like what we cannot perceive of ourselves of how the world can be of what it could be and how we can allow ourselves to be in a position to let that happen i feel super fortunate to have you know to be involved with the dirty art department because of this because uh, it keeps my mind super open <laughs> to to different things on an active level of discussion you know and sometimes people are going into topics which are not mine not my topics but still like wildly opening uh, my mind so I, yeah i hope that answers the question in a way i think it did yeah sarah on the topic of like talking about getting a new perspective and like eye opening because yeah. in my second year of university I encounter with your work especially with the Lucky Larry's Cosmic Commune and it's inspired me to build a project called Playground where I like made a utopian non-utopia and designed a living system and designed some toys for practicing human emotions which had a manifesto and later influenced my design practice as a whole and also even just reading the introduction to dirty art department changed my perspective to design and from going to like oh I'm designing typefaces I'm designing compositions to I like encountered the world of I'm designing a system I'm building worlds and like thinking about all this dimensions and so much more to it so i would just like to express my <laughs> gratitude to you and say thank you well sarah yeah and super nice to hear like i'm honored it sounds really interesting the project so that's that's great that we can discuss through that thank you sarah if you have something to ask to us that's also <laughs> Yeah, yeah, maybe an interesting question is is like maybe I can ask to to each of you. But what do you think is the most pressing issue? If you had to pick one, because I know that there's many, but what would be the most pressing issue of our moment now in the world? Yeah, I'm gonna. I I can go first. I'm gonna 
give a very broad answer, but I think it's like how we live together and not only amongst people, but with other species and with the, with the planet as well. So this question of how we live together, the question of cohabitation, and also how we live together with the products and the technologies that we make, I would include that as well. Well, I would say generating free time. Like this is a problem both for cognitive and manual laborers, but dividing the day for eight, eight, eight kind of uh, portions, like sleep, labor, and leisure, just doesn't work. In the between, like, both lines of Sarps and John's answers, I was going to say alienation and how, because alienation to others and to ourselves From John's perspective, it's alienation to our surroundings and from ranks it starts to alienation to ourselves and to our labor. So feeling that disconnection from the system, from ourselves and from our surroundings. Thank you. <laughs> good answers. Good, good, uh, good things we got to go for. Yeah, yeah. For me, the biggest issue is how to be an anti-capitalist And be really rich at the same time. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's the, there's there's the. I mean, it's funny, but there's two books: "Inventing the Future" from Shinichek and Williams, and this. And I forgot the author now, but to be. Oh, no, sorry. Fully, fully luxury automated communism, which are. I, I mean, the inventing the future talks about the universal basic income as one of the ways that uh, I, I mean, they talk about automation and universal basic income as kind of being the way to free up a lot of their time. And of course, it has to be universal basic income and automation, not under a right wing capitalist paradigm, but under a socialist paradigm. And uh, and in that sense, yeah, I guess I guess in that sense, they see a way that we can, you know, have our cake and eat it. Because I think this is, of course, it's, I, I think when we talk about aesthetic as well, it's like, who said it very well? Like, if socialism means like endlessly long communal meetings, I'm not in for it. You know, if it means going going to like super fun raves and like, you know, going for you know i mean for, and this is the question like i mean these endlessly long communal meetings are part of the process that we have to go to but they're not the reality that we want to create you know and i think that the richness of course uh, um as Tharp says part of the richness is actually having the time to actually you know live our lives yeah and also the emma goldman quote is like if i can't dance i don't want to be part of your revolution exactly yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's actually if you put that over if you read if you read William Morris's news from nowhere and then finish it with Emma Goldman's quote because the biggest problem of William Morris's news from nowhere it's like it is a utopia but it's really boring <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and also maybe it's like uh there is and partly I feel that's what you are also doing maybe indirectly is like this investment in democratic luxury so to say like having that reach for joyous libidinal ecstatic moments and not making it kind of in a way inaccessible uh, or expansive so to yeah. say context or objects even yeah i would like to say or think that i think also ultimately as you know artists designers 
poets, musicians, etc. Like fundamentally, there's something something of the spiritual in what we do, or or the you know the post spiritual, spiritual, whatever. But somehow it is it it is very much uh, in this question of alienation. It's, it is very much how you know how we can touch something untouchable you know, untouchable, infinite, but also how, how that uh, is for people. And I think this is also part, you know, that there is a very sensitive human or being psychological thing, which I think is also fundamental in all of our work. If we have time, like, I would like to know if you have any forthcoming projects which reflect on accelerationism, because like, you had uh, many references starting with Inventing the Future. Yeah, no, I must say, I mean, in a way, the New World Projects is a kind of interesting discussion for that. As one of my extra students, Chris, who who's a filmmaker, basically said, can, he, he was kind of going, can accelerationism ever not be right-wing? You know, it's kind of, he has quite a big problematic with it. And I think that a lot of the problem that I have with accelerationism uh, discussion is that they gloss over some of some of what are very, very problematic ideas or very easy solutions. Like in, in News from Nowhere, if you read it, because I went through it like with a fine tooth comb one time, they never talk about how they solved energy, you know, nowhere. Is it solved? And, and in accelerationism, there's a brief moment where they work at, say, how they're going to solve production is with 3D printing, for example. And when you look at the reality, like, that's not the reality of the world. You know, like, sure, you're going to be able to use some technical technology fixes in some places. And so for me, it's like, I think there's a big danger in, in passing that responsibility over to, over to the technology. And also, I think it's like this lack That's also I observe in some of philosophers' responses to art as well, and in some philosophers' responses to technologies or even like design, is yeah. that the the lack of knowledge with from within that field, I mean they don't have to know, of course, but becomes sometimes so apparent. It's not a case of blocking their imagination, but it's more often revealing their in a way lack of command over how actually things are made, how resources work, how energy works, what is materiality, how does it change shape and stuff like that. Yeah. And that I find, maybe it's not surprising, but I always find surprising. No, I think it's quite true. I mean, I mean, I think that it's crazy how politicians talk about labor and et cetera, et cetera, but they have no idea what it takes to get a pickaxe and, you know, cut some coal out of the mine, you know, which is, you know, like, how, how can you not know that and talk about labor? You know, and I think this is in general like a very important thing is is to really like at the end this physicality, which I think you know, being able to deal with the physicality and what that actually means is a fundamental part of of what we do actually. Yeah. And I wanted to maybe a nice end is is um, we one of the great workshops we did uh, with Dirty Art Department, and it was just like a two day thing. We'd been after we got chucked out of our squat, we got we inherited a muddy field. Like just a field full of mud. So myself with uh, Daniel Devar, who's part of the artist duo Devar and Gikel, we decided that we were going to do a workshop on digging holes. And so we just like went to this, like it was pouring with rain. We had a load of shovels. We walked to the middle of this field and everyone's like, all, all the students are just looking at me and Daniel like, are you fucking joking? <laughs> and we said, okay, but look, we're here. Let's just do it. What should we do? And we said, okay, 
we'll form a circle, hold our hands, form a circle. That'll be the size of the hole. And we start digging. And Daniel said something like, and then we'll just put all our wishes into this hole and whatever comes out will be. And it was like, it was great. You know, like we actually had somehow like something really good was with it. You know, I, I, I it looks like, it, I mean, the photos from it look like an apocalypse because it's really just mud rain and and you know people in all weather gear digging and digging and digging but there was something really nice in the you know in the in the futility of it as well you know and the simplicity and the fact that actually somehow the mind was allowed just totally left to actually get non-alienated you know to be really close to the self to the nature and things like that anyway yeah yeah no that's a great end note i think thank you so much yarzi it was really fun and really yeah. uh, like eye opening and thanks everyone for their yeah. contributions yes uh, thank you sarah asli sap very much super nice to meet you all very happy and to come likewise, together with likewise. You all. Yeah. thank you so much yeah. have a great week so much super great and thank you can very much <laughs> my pleasure we'll speak again Thank you for joining us in this conversation. Make sure to check out the show notes to find out more about what we've discussed today. There's an extensive list of links and information down there. You can also visit us at ahali.space in the interweb or get some visual insights at ahali.podcast via Instagram. I guess it goes without saying, but we really appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us by subscribing, rating, following, or whatever works for you. This was Ahali Conversations with me, Jan Altay, and we hope to see you next time.